Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful weekend. I'm happy that you're here. We are in our ongoing study of the book of Esther. And so if you've kind of been following along, we've had one sermon in that series on Esther. And this is probably an encouragement. Um, that first sermon, which was a couple weeks ago here at CBL, uh, really laid out a lot of the introductory and historical context for where and when and what's happening in the book of Esther. So if you didn't get a chance to watch that one, I'd actually encourage you to do that because that really sets up uh, the, the scene and the historical setting for all the rest of the things that come and really is kind of what this sermon builds on. So you're going to be able to find that on our website. But this morning, or today rather, we're going to start with um, a look at an image. So you're going to see a picture on your screen. This is called a shepherd elephant or existential quandary. Now, a couple questions on this shepherd ele- elephant. How many legs does it have? Okay. How many feet does it have? Okay. Maybe you answered four on both of those. And yet, as you look at that picture, you also uh, instantly recognize that there's something going on with it. It's, it's on some level a, an optical illusion. Uh, this existential quandary or shepherd elephant was actually created by a man named Roger Shepard. Uh, he was a psychologist at Stanford, and he drew this and, and put it out in 1990. And this is one of what they call an impossible object. So there's other examples of those, uh, interlocking rings, things like that, Um, but impossible objects where you look at it with your eyes and your mind is trying to make sense of what you're seeing and yet there doesn't seem to be a start and a finish on that picture. In fact, it's fascinating if you take that picture and you put a piece of paper over it and it is slowly revealed from the top down, you'll have one idea. If you did the very same thing and slowly reveal it from the bottom up, you'd have a different picture, a different idea of what you're looking at. But I think that's a pretty good illustration for what we're going to be talking about today uh, when we talk about living in ambiguity, which is going to be our theme uh, under the, the overarching topic of Esther, the silence that shouts. Today, really what we want to see are two people, Mordecai and Esther, and how they made choices and had to live in an incredibly ambiguous world. And I think almost instantly you understand that, don't you? Think of how ambiguous much of this last four or five months have been. Uh, We have partial knowledge on things, but not the full picture. We struggle to make choices, administrators, government, as individuals, as parents, and yet we only have parts of the picture in order to make really, really important decisions. This past week, at least two weeks ago around here in Colorado, uh, the kids were all going to go back to school, at least in a hybrid fashion. As of this week, 
That's now changed, completely digital. And so you know what it feels like to live in the ambiguity of the past four or five months. But I'd say that even beyond that, you know what it feels like to live in the ambiguity of just life. Christian living in an ambiguous culture and in a world where you don't have all the answers and all the knowledge and you are expected to make decisions can be incredibly frustrating and sometimes deflating and sometimes even break us. Today, that's exactly what we want to look at. We're going to follow Mordecai and Esther and watch the decisions they make in an incredibly secular and ambiguous world in the nation of Persia. They're not going to make all the right decisions. Neither do we. But we have comfort that we're going to find Christ and we're going to find God in the midst of that ambiguity. And so our theme simply today is going to be living, uh, living life in the midst of ambiguity. And that's what we're going to look at and, and kind of draw from our text here today. Now, just a little bit of a, of a primer of a background on what has happened up to the point of chapter 2 in Esther where we're at today. All of chapter 1. We were introduced to Xerxes and his queen, Vashti, um, and all of his bros, his buddies, at this huge celebration that lasted 180 days long and then seven days of open bar. Now, if you were listened to our last sermon series, you know that that did not end well. Uh, Vashti was ordered to come to Xerxes to per- put, be put on parade. She refused to do that. All of Xerxes' pals told him, well, now you need to banish her and you need to find a new queen. That's what's happening on the precipice of our text here today. And there's two things we've got to remember that this entire book is set in, in and the entire historical setting of this book. It's in the, the superpower of the world at the time named Persia. And it's in the capital of Persia named Susa. And it involves King Xerxes, who has unlimited power. And there's two things that, that uh, currencies that made the city of Susa and the nation of Persia move. There are two things that people prized more than anything else. If you were a man, you were judged by your wealth and the power that you had. And if you were a woman... You were sadly judged by your beauty. Those are the two things, those are the two currencies that that unbelieving secular society in Persia, Persia were dealing in. Now, that's where you're going to now be introduced to two new characters, believers, one named Mordecai, one named Esther, both Jews who, whose families had been shipped from Babylon or from Jerusalem rather to Babylon. And we're going to see some of the decisions and how they were forced to live in an ambiguous, morally ambiguous, secular culture in Persia. Some of those decisions will be good. Some of those decisions will not be so good. Um, But we're going to find ourselves reflected in that. And ultimately, we're going to see how God comes to us in the midst of our ambiguity. And so let me jump into our text. I want to read for you just verse 7 and 11. And this introduces us to Mordecai. Read chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 and 11. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now understand the setting that's happening here. Uh, Mordecai is an older cousin 
of Esther, which was not uncommon back then. You had, you had um, large age gaps and large families. And so Mordecai was blood relative to Esther. But what we find out about Esther very quickly is that she was an orphan. So her mother and her father had died and Mordecai had taken her to be his own daughter. And so um, in the context of the book of Esther, Mordecai is very much a father to Esther. That's how he looks at her. That's how he loves her, like his own daughter. And we see that right away at the beginning. Remember, uh, King Xerxes has now instituted this, this national beauty pageant of sorts where scholars estimate that there was probably between 400 to maybe 1,400 women who were brought from all over the kingdom and who were prized for their beauty. So it was this, this huge beauty pageant and the reward, if you want to call it that, was possibly becoming queen of all of Persia. This was the beauty pageant that was meant to replace the queen, Queen Vashti, who had refused Xerxes in the chapter prior. And so that's exactly what's happening here. Mordecai has his daughter Esther, and she's beautiful. She's attractive. And she is, is conscripted. She is forced to be in this beauty pageant. And Mordecai goes along with it. But you can sense a little bit of his care and his concern for Esther in verse 11, because he would go to the edge of the harem and every single day he would walk back and forth just to try to get a glimpse of what was happening to Esther. But maybe we have to imagine just a little bit everything that went into this for Mordecai. How would you react, right, as a father? When a king, when officers came to take your daughter to be a part of this, this beauty pageant for King Xerxes. Well, I think that's where the ambiguity of living gets a little bit difficult. Because I think in our mind, there's lots of other choices we would maybe make that Mordecai didn't. And I think on some level, we kind of have to ask ourselves, well, why didn't he do those things? Because think of the, the choices he could have made. Uh, Mordecai could have taken Esther and they could have ran, right? They could have ran and, and hidden and, and stayed far away, right? To, to, to protect Esther from King Xerxes, Mordecai could have taken his daughter, protected her, and simply lived a life on the run. And yet, how far would they have gotten? I don't know. How long could they have hidden? I'm not sure. What other people would they have put in danger by trying to hide from King Xerxes? Probably lots. Could Mordecai have dressed Esther up? <laughs> Try to, I don't know, make her look ugly, right? Try to hide her beauty from the, the people around her. Maybe. And maybe he even tried that. But clearly it didn't work. Could Mordecai have fought for his daughter? Should he have fought for his daughter? Should he have laid down his life, taken up a sword, tried to fend off the king's men as they came to take Esther? He could have. Maybe in our noblest aspirations, we would say we, we would have. But then he would be dead. And he wouldn't be there for her. And he wouldn't be able to guide her. And maybe to give her comfort in this incredibly ambiguous stressful situation. See, I, I think we look at Mordecai in this morally ambiguous situation, and I think it's very easy for us to say, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he make this choice? Why did he tell her to hide her Jewishness? Why did he make these decisions in that moment? 
I think it's easy to second guess what was happening with Mordecai. And maybe if we had Mordecai here today, and if he was able to go back, maybe he would make different decisions. But that's kind of the point of the story right here, isn't it? Mordecai was doing the best he could with limited knowledge and, and the situation that was at hand for the good of his daughter, Esther. And you could hear and, and even kind of see how his heart was breaking. Can you imagine him as a father pacing back and forth every day, trying to just get a glimpse of her to see if she was all right? Can you imagine the, the anguish that had to have been going through his heart as he was forced to give his daughter into this beauty pageant? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? But that's the decisions oftentimes we have to make as fathers, as mothers, as grandparents. We have to make decisions with the best information we have at hand oftentimes in morally ambiguous um, settings. So that was Mordecai. But then we move to Esther. And she's in a very similar situation. Listen to verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And so... Esther is conscripted. This was not a choice. She was forced into this, this beauty contest. And yet, she goes through with all of the prescriptions, right? 12 months of beauty prescriptions. 12 months where they try to just make them even more beautiful than they naturally were. And Esther goes along with it. Now, this also is kind of hard for us, isn't it? Because we could ask lots of questions why would Esther do this? Why would she go along with this? Why wouldn't she, she fight tooth and nail? Why wouldn't she do everything she could to not have this happen? Why wouldn't she rather prefer death than going into this beauty contest? Because remember, the, the result of this beauty contest, there, there was only four options that would happen if you were in it. Number one, the king didn't like you and didn't choose you. And because the king didn't want to be shamed, you would be forever uh, um, sent as a, as a part of the king's harem. You would be basically a single woman the rest of your life at, let's say, age 17 or 18, right? Never to be called on again. Maybe you would be part of his harem, and so you would get called on to pleasure and please the king, but no intimacy, no connection. That's basically your only rule. The third option was maybe you would be so lucky to be called one of the king's wives, and then if you were in that position, then your job was to bear heirs for the king, or maybe you would become queen and be called on by the king all the time. But there were only four options. This was not going to turn out good for Esther. She wasn't going to lose the beauty pageant and then be able to go back home to her life. No, by the time she was in this mess, there were no other options and all of the options on the table weren't good. And so we ask ourselves, well, why didn't, why didn't she fight? Why didn't she run? Why didn't she reveal her, her identity, even though Mordecai had told her not to? Why didn't she reveal that she was Jewish? Why, why didn't all of these things happen? And the answer is, we don't know. Just like Mordecai, Esther was in a morally ambiguous situation and made decisions that, at least seemingly on the surface for us, don't seem to be the right ones. But in a lot of ways, that's kind of how life is. 
In fact, a lot of people will have a problem with Esther, um, specifically in the book of Esther, just because of this. So there are many that, that uh, would say, well, how come Esther didn't stand up? In fact, those that would say Esther is terrible. They would look down on her and say that she is terrible, um, especially those maybe from a more feminist bent. Why didn't Esther do what Vashti did? Up to this point, we almost think Vashti looks like the hero, doesn't she? Because she stood up to the king. She said, I will not do it, and then was divorced and banished. Why didn't Esther do what Vashti did? Why didn't she stand up for her rights and stand up for the king? I don't know. That's a reason why a lot of people have looked down on and even disliked Esther. But she's also been disliked, especially in these early chapters, on the other side. Because why didn't she act like a believer? Why didn't she stand up to Xerxes and stand up for her faith? And in fact, we have uh, illustrations and people that did that in exile in Babylon. You think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and these, these were men who were willing to be thrown into lion's den and into the fiery furnace. And they, would, they stood for their Lord and they prayed to their God. And they were powerful examples of faith. Why didn't Esther do that? And we don't have the answers to those, especially in this early chapter. We know that Mordecai and Esther were doing the best they could. And they made choices in morally ambiguous situations that you have to wonder if they had a chance to do it all over again, maybe they would make different choices. And yet they were doing the best they could with the limited knowledge they had in a secular, unbelieving, morally ambiguous world. Does it sound familiar at all? Can you empathize with Mordecai and Esther, especially in this early chapter? I hope you can. I can. Because I think of how many times, we think of how many times we have made decisions with limited knowledge, trying to do the Lord's will, trying to do the best we can, and yet being heavily influenced by the culture around us. Decisions um, that we have made, that we have gotten into, and halfway into it we realize just how bad it is, and yet at that point you had to see it through to the end. Morally compromised decisions, morally compromised li lives, morally ambiguous living, Christian living. That's what our lives look like more often than not, rather than towering examples uh, of faith. And so I think we've got to empathize with Esther and Mordecai, because I think we are, at times, Esther and Mordecai, making decisions that are not good or right or godly, that have put us into positions that we wish we weren't in, and suffering the consequences that come with it. That's the story of Mordecai and Esther. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, how does God view us now? How does God look at us now in our morally ambiguous living? You don't find it in chapter 2 of Esther. I'm going to give you a spoiler. You're going to hear it by the end of the book of Esther. If Mordecai and Esther are making questionable, morally ambiguous choices in the early chapters, Here's a, a, um, a fast forward to the end. By the end, Esther looks like one of the bravest um, women of faith that you will ever find. And I think that's the comfort we have. See, our God looks at us, looks at you and your morally ambiguous living and the mistakes that you've made, and he doesn't define you by those things. In fact, when God looks at you, he sees a bridegroom. 
When God looks at you, and we see that throughout the New Testament, God sees Jesus' perfection, his life which was given on the cross for you. When God looks at you, he sees sins washed clean because of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In fact, the book of Romans tells us that specifically. Paul says this about you and I and the the poor decisions, the morally ambiguous decisions and the morally ambiguous Christian living that we have had. This is what Paul says about you and I. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's the point of this early chapter in the book of Esther. We sometimes make decisions that we wish we had not. But the blessing we have in Christ is that he sees us as perfect. Through faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, that's why Christ came, right? God does not ask us to earn salvation by living morally exemplary lives. lives. Rather, he comes to us and views us through the filter of grace. He sees our morally compromised lives and says, I love you anyway. I'll love you enough to die on the cross for your sins. He comes to us, people who who don't recognize his grace, at times don't want his grace, and at other times simply um, cannot live up to the ideals of that grace. He comes to us, to flawed sinners, to you and I. He looks at us in grace, through faith, and through the lens of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. You are forgiven, you are loved for the decisions you made that were, that were wrong, that were ambiguous, and that you wish you could do again, you are loved and you are forgiven because of Christ and what he's done for you. That's going to be the message of the book of Esther, and it's the message right here on the front end as well. Even in our morally ambiguous living, Christ loves us anyway and has given his life on the cross for us. And that changes how we live our lives. In fact, at the very end of our our text, um, we get some descriptions for Christian living. In fact, I want to leave you with maybe four things, four things rather, um, um, practical steps on how we can now live in God's grace in our sometimes morally ambiguous lives and world. So four things, four, I think, um, impact, impactful things that we can do as believers um, as we journey through this world. Uh, first one is we need to see Scripture. You need to be in God's Word and actually understand what God says about right and wrong. And understand this, that Scripture rarely gives us do this, don't do that. Scripture almost always gives us principles, which is fabulous, isn't it? Because if God just said do this, don't do that, that Scripture would have been locked in time. Instead, he gives us principles. He says, honor life, love justice, forgive, offer grace. He gives us principles for living in morally ambiguous times. And we won't know those. You won't know those unless you are actually in Scripture. So the first one is be in Scripture. The second one is we need to confess. We need to confess that we are not perfect, that we have made mistakes, that we will continue to make mistakes, that we have have made choices that are expedient rather than God-honoring. We need to confess our sins and understand that everyone around us is as sinful as we are. 
And so there's no room for arrogance or um, looking down our noses at anyone else. Each and every one of us have breaks and fractures and choices that we have made that we wish we could go back and change. Let's confess our sins. So look into scripture, confess our sins, and then be gracious. No one's perfect, including ourselves. And so exude grace in your life. Everyone is trying to make decisions that they feel are best with the knowledge they have at hand. And so let's be gracious. Let's let grace ooze out of us as believers. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Offer and show grace. Speak kindly of your friends, your family, and your neighbor. Right? Simply show grace and the grace of Christ. And lastly, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Pray. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Ask the Lord for guidance. Ask the Lord to help you with decisions that you simply don't have all the answers to. But go to your Lord in prayer and be assured that he is not only going to strengthen your faith through it, but also give you wisdom for living life in in an ambiguous world. As you go into your week, my guess is you're going to be inundated with lots and lots of more ambiguity. But let's go into it knowing that we are forgiven that we are loved. Go into it knowing your scripture. Go into it with confession, being gracious, and ultimately with prayer. Lord's blessings on the rest of your week. Amen.